Hello there and welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Now, after a week's hiatus, I'm delighted to be back in the hosting hot seat. And this week I'm joined alongside two members of the Sports Pro editorial team. As ever, I'm sat alongside the smiling face of Tom Bassam, our news editor and my fellow co-host. And joining us this week for a special appearance is our senior staff writer, Ed Dixon. Tom, it's good to be back alongside you and Ed, welcome to the show. Hello, George. Hello, Ed. Nice to have you back, Ed. Always, uh, always great to see your uh, friendly face and whichever backdrop you've chosen chosen this week. No, no cows. I'm disappointed. No, no. Always a surprise to be back, but uh, no less a pleasure. Hope you're both well. Well, it's good to see you both. This week uh, has been a busy one for you both at Sports Pro Towers as we enter live events week. So uh, that's our sort of our week dedicated to our editorial and online event coverage of all things live events. We have a range of news articles, features, interviews, and an online webinar, all exploring how to procure, put on, and how to maximize on live sporting events. And this week, Tom and Ed, we're going to be looking at what makes a great live event, aren't we? Yes, we are. It should be an interesting discussion. I think we're coming at this from a few different points of view, so it be interesting to see where we land. Now, Ed, I know... On this podcast, we're always interested in fairness. Um, so I think it's probably best as we spend the next 45 minutes ranking what we think are the best three live events that the world of sport has got to offer. That we first establish a set of criteria, wouldn't you agree? I think that sounds absolutely spot on. There needs to be some method in the madness, doesn't there? There certainly does. And madness there is no shortage of. So let's get some methodology in there. What about let's start with at least how we classify a live event. So, Tom, are we talking a single live event or are we talking of a collection? So let's say a Premier League match, let's say Arsenal-Tottenham, compared to the Premier League match day experience. I think it's difficult to classify like a single live event because these can be so like dependent on results. Like You can go to, emotionally anyway, you could go to a game and um, if your team wins or you get the outcome that you want, even if it's like just a bet that you've had or say say something similar. That can completely skew how you feel about that single match. So I think we should probably look at events more broadly. I'm not sure you could round the Premier League into one single live event. The experience is so different from stadium to stadium, from Saturday to Friday to Tuesday, whichever day of the week it is, it's going to be slightly different. So it's really hard to bring that all in together. And I'm just not sure that there's kind of a universal enough experience across the Premier League or even sort of any kind of week-to-week season like that as opposed to maybe like a broader event. So say an Olympics, World Cup, a Euros. I'm not sure I'd want to even go into like a sort of single NFL game versus a Super Bowl, for example. Interesting. So for you, Tom, what makes a great live event? I think there has to be a combination of good fan experience that encompasses everything from like, how easy is it for me to get there? Am I stuck in a queue for three hours in a car? Are the public transport links good? Because these are all things that like really a good property, a good rights holder, a good event organizer will have thought of. How have I got my ticket? Is that easy to use? Was it expensive? What's it like when I'm actually there? Like, is the venue nice on the outside? Are there things for me to do before? Are there things for me to do after? Am I going to be entertained for the whole time for the duration of like, what is probably going to be the best part of my day? I also think probably like, atmosphere plays into part of this so like you could go somewhere have like all of the like the nicest amenities and all this kind of stuff but if like there's just no buzz in the crowd 
that's also on an event organizer to create. Like I think sometimes people can get criticized for doing this artificially, but actually that does enhance the experience. Those for me are all elements that I think we should consider in this. But then like you've also got to think about we're not a fan podcast. So like what is this from a business perspective as well? Like I, I think those are also very key when we're talking about this. Ed, where do you sit on that? So when you're balancing the success of a live event, how much are you considering that, particularly with the sports business hat on? How much, where do you think the balance lies between its profitability and what it does for the balance sheet compared to what it does for the fan? Yeah, there has to be a balance, obviously. I think it's worth mentioning that I still think whoever is putting on a blue ribbon event, the hard work is in a way done. If you're putting on a major final, say the Super Bowl, say the World Cup final, people are going to be interested it's kind of up to the stakeholders not to mess it up, really. So things like, which Tom has already touched on, ease of entry and exit, transport links, value to the experience, queuing. I think the added elements are kind of the cherry on on top of the cake. So when you're coming at it from a business standpoint for these top events, you kind of know commercially you're going to be onto a winner. It's just finding a way that's going to help elevate that experience. So, you know, look good on the balance sheet, but also in a way not feel like fans have been I've had to overpay, if you like. Just touching on that in a bit more detail, you've kind of raised an important point there, which is coming at a live event of the World Cup final, for instance, is a very different conversation compared to a challenger sport looking to grow their fan base and that are in much smaller arenas where it really counts what that fan experience is like. Whereas, as you say, something like the World Cup final, your job's already done. It's the prestige of the event more than anything that you go for. So, Tom, how do you think sports properties really need to tailor their live event experience compared to something like their popularity or their global reach and is it harder i think that football for example has a much easier time of this like people go to the game almost in spite of what is going on around it in terms of setting up criteria for this like i'd almost be tempted to rule out football as a premium live event experience right like you could go to a football game be stuck in the car for four hours before be stuck in the car for four hours afterwards be shuttled there by police because you might be attacked by rival fans have crap food have crap drink and still come away from it feeling like you have a great experience because that's what football should be in a way and you're almost like taught that that's what football is and actually on the business side of it too really crap football experiences and i'm gonna like dig out the fa here the fa cup semi-final being one of them wembley big stadium really expensive fans get fleeced it doesn't mean anything it's fundamentally not a good fan experience, but it really delivers commercially. For that reason, maybe I'd be tempted to just be like, I think we could probably get rid of football because actually it's a very broad brushstroke, but like the World Cup, people are going to go to that World Cup final and have a good time or like come away from it feeling pretty positive about it. And it's going to make a load of money regardless of whether or not the fact it was actually technically a well-delivered live event experience. It's interesting. You say to rule out football and I, I do agree that it is a slight anomaly compared to other major sports but do you think that's a, a failing of Premier League clubs and that there is a degree of complacency that exists that they know that those tickets are going to sell out they are in significant demand almost regardless as you say of external factors and actually they deliver a, a pretty appalling particularly the big clubs I think a pretty appalling match day experience it's well covered the disrepair to which stadiums like Old Trafford are falling into. I'm an Arsenal fan. I've been to many Arsenal games, and I certainly wouldn't say that the Arsenal fan experience is a fantastic one beyond what happens on the pitch, particularly these days. But <laughs> and is that a significant lost pocket of revenue? 
I think so. I think they're trying to address it. Like you've seen what FSG have done with Anfield. You've seen what Spurs have done with Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. There's lots of other clubs that do better match day experiences than Manchester United. Like Manchester United have refurbed a few of their hospitality lounges. And if you do that, that's fine. And going to walking out into the, the cathedral that is Old Trafford is pretty spectacular. But it's not like going to even some of the bigger stadiums in the US. So if you went to like SoFi and in LA, for example, that's an incredible just all round experience of the stadium the setup of it everything is designed for you to like have a good time and have your attention like grabbed for the whole journey through the game whereas old trafford is very much focused around what's happening on the pitch and maybe like and traditionalists would probably want it that way a little bit but there's definitely a criticism and i think it's very justified that especially in the premier league that's been ignored arsenal manchester united probably the worst of that chelsea again more limited by the fact that their capabilities of what Stamford Bridge can actually do, but again, not the greatest place to take in sport. Ed, I think the Premier League is a good example, or football in general is a, is a good example of really two polar opposing aspects of a live event, the fan experience and its direct commercial impact in terms of selling the venue. I, I say they're polar opposite, obviously they inform each other significantly, but the Premier League is an example of one working in extreme success and the other with the gap to fill. What about the commercial impact in terms of sponsorship activations, sponsorship inventory and how live events are able to maximise their commercial impact from you know a B2B point of view? Well, this kind of falls back into something I was about to say, actually just following up on Tom's point. The Premier League, particularly in the US, is getting compared more and more with US leagues as interest in the Premier League across the pond increases. But it's worth remembering the Premier League, or European soccer and particularly the Premier League, has never had that fusion of, of sport and entertainment like the US leagues have. You know, they were founded as community clubs over 100 years ago. And it seems ridiculous saying it, but it's still actually, in a way, football as a live experience in today's modern world is still acclimatizing particularly when you look at things like the Super Bowl which I'm sure we'll come to so I mean even when the Premier League first started when it was you know branded as the Premiership and they tried to sort of introduce sort of half-time show you know very sort of bargain basement half-time shows and and cheerleaders and it just it just looked you know on, a, on an absolutely mud-ridden pitch in the early 90s it just didn't work and Bargain basement. I don't think you're going to be putting them in your top three, are you, Ed? <laughs> well, who knows? But um, the point I'm trying to make is that I think if your live event experience has been founded in, has always had that, and obviously the sport itself is the entertainment, but it's the ancillary stuff that contributes to the entertainment experience. If your sports property or event has always come with that sort of hand in hand, then you're going to, then, then the changes you make should in theory be a lot more I guess, organic and, and seamless. Whereas if you're trying to put a square peg in a round hole, I mean, a classic example is cricket. I mean, even looking at the 2019 Cricket World Cup final at Lords, I think we can all agree it was a fantastic day. It was a fantastic game. But the one rogue thing that was happened was they played some music the slightly crusty members maybe weren't overly familiar with. And it just cut to the people in the Lords members area was sort of, you know, in their tweed or whatever, or the rest of it with their sort of slightly raised eyebrow that a bit of house was playing. So um, it's things like that, and I'm sure we'll touch on that. But again, to, to your point earlier, I think yeah, sponsors, they need to find that line where, as you say, they're able to maximise commercial activations and exposure. But And again, it, it depends on the scenario, because if they're, if they're doing it in, a, in an environment which is maybe less used to that, less accustomed to that, then it's going to be harder. I think for me, like 
if we're talking about a live event and this touches on like the commercial elements of this too, you've got to think like, who is this for? And actually the best live events are going to be for the most people by my definition anyway. Like I don't think you can consider yourself a really, truly brilliant live event if you're exclusive of certain groups. And that includes like families and kids that limits not just like the kind of people that you can get through the gate, but also limits the kind of partners that you can sell to because you're, you're, you're decreasing your market. You're saying we are just for angry blokes or we are just for people that like very traditional things and don't want to see anything that's actually like newfangled or innovative. They just want a version of what they've always had and they want that live in front of them. So like, I, I don't think for me that that is the, that, that is the, that can be considered the best live event. So again, it comes back to my point earlier. I think football might have to go because I think men's football does a very bad job of being inclusive and all of this kind of stuff. Women's football, completely different story. I think the, I think the last women's Euros were a really great example of like what an inclusive football environment can look like. And maybe that makes a case for it to be ranked in those best live events. But yeah, men's football definitely can't be there based on that criteria. Last thing on that point and on the criteria before, I think we should start ranking our events. You talked about women's football there. One key element to women's football and the success of their live events has been legacy. And we've talked a lot with guests that we've had on the podcast, particularly host destinations that talk about the importance of a legacy from a live event. Now that can be a legacy locally with communities, with fan bases that are involved in the event, but it could also be a sporting legacy. I think the women's Euros, particularly the, the 2022 Euros, has seen an, an enormous legacy um, on the pitch. Growth of media rights, of the WSL participation, WSL attendances, live in stadium. Do you think that's an important criteria to the success of a live event? Yeah, I do think the legacy, it has a sort of impact on this. But at the same time, I don't think that that should be, like for me, it wouldn't be weighted that highly because I'm thinking about this as something that's like, what is this like for me on the day? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, yeah, you can talk about like the kind of the business or strategic initiatives afterwards, but really I'm, I'm almost thinking of this as something that's like, okay, how am I looking at this as something looking forward? So am I looking forward to this event? Will this event deliver for me commercially? Strategically, yes, I think legacy has, has an impact to play here, but I mean, it's also such a gray area when you yeah. come to like trying to measure it. Like, um, I mean, the like the, the, what you talked about there with the impact of the Euros and the WSL and the domestic game here, I think that's really important, but you'll have 15 different people telling you that uh, London 2012 Olympics was either brilliant legacy or zero legacy or somewhere in between. So I think trying to judge a live event based on something that's not particularly tangible and can be so open to interpretation, I'm not sure I'd have that as a particularly, as a big, as a big check mark for me. And I suppose a lot of that comes down to what the property itself can control, right? Like when it comes to sporting legacy, the women's Euros legacy is, really contingent on the FA and, and local football federations capturing that interest and supporting grassroots programs on broadcasters to invest, etc. So let's ring fence the live experience to the day itself or the weekend itself. Whilst we've been talking, I've sort of jotted down what I think could be four, four criteria elements to base our ranking. So the first being fan experience, but from the softer side. So for want of a better word, the vibes around the event, how you feel, etc. So we'll have that maybe out of 10. We'll have its commercial impact from a fan. So it's ticketing, pricing, how well it monetizes the fan base at the live events. Second one out of 10. Thirdly, we'll look at the commercial impact from partners and from business partnerships. 
we'll have that out of 10. And then finally, I thought we'll look at logistics. So how well the concessions work, what the queuing situation is like, travel considerations, et cetera. How does that sound, gents, as broad criteria out of 10? Sounds about right for me. Yes, that all sounds good, mate. Let's go down the rabbit hole. Now, before we get in part two, where we're ranking our best three live events, Tom and I would like to uh, make a, a plea on our behalf. Recently, we're delighted to say we have been nominated by the Sports Podcast Group as one of the best sports business podcasts. So please do visit the sportpodcastgroup.com where listener votes will be all that matters when it comes to crowning the champion. So if you have listened, you are listening, and you like what we do here on the Sports Web Podcast, please do go to the website at sportspodcastgroup.com and give us a vote. We really do appreciate every single one. Now, I know we have uh, a bit of a friendly rivalry with our brothers in arms over at the Streamtime podcast, Sports Pros podcast that is dedicated to the broadcast and streaming industry. Well, their hosts, Nick Meacham and Chris Stone, are also up for an award. So uh, if you are interested in that side of the business, feel free to vote for them also. Tom, Ed, welcome back. Now, for this section of the podcast, we'll be ranking what we think, and as a consensus, are the best three live events that the sporting world has got to offer. And we'll be ranking them against four key criteria. The first being, what is the fan experience like? Second being, what is the commercial impact of the event for fans? Thirdly, what is the commercial impact for partners? And finally, how the logistics of the event delivered from queues and concessions to travel and all the rest. Now, Tom, I'll let you come to the party with your first nomination. So my first nomination is the Super Bowl. I think everyone is aware of what the Super Bowl is. It's an absolute commercial behemoth. I think that 30 second ad spots this year for this year's Super Bowl are going for around 7 million. It's the culmination of the NFL season, but it's more than that. Like there's there's a whole Super Bowl halftime, which is an industry within itself. This, the NFL's created a whole product out of the fact that it's got a 20-minute break in the middle where they can squeeze in a, a musical performance that attracts some of the biggest artists in the world. People who have zero interest in the game will tune in to watch Rihanna. That is incredible. In terms of attracting people, like the average ticket is estimated to be about uh, six grand. I mean, that is not what most people will pay. That is the average, like when you take all of the ticket prices together and divide them by the number of people in the stadium. Some people are paying lots and lots of money to be there, especially on the secondary market where prices for fans go absolutely through the roof. I'm not sure actually that that's kind of, well, you could probably use that against the Super Bowl as a as a as an argument, but it just goes to show its appeal. It certainly shows its commercial impact in terms of monetizing fans. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like from a from a business standpoint, it's uh, yeah, it, it's, it's almost unparalleled. I think as a sort of single event, there's pregame, there's a halftime, there's everything goes on around that weekend. There's a whole week of events that build up to it. All of the media around it is absolutely crazy. I think for me, I don't think that there is another single event that tops the Super Bowl, apart from maybe my uh, my second nomination. But we'll have to uh, wait a little long to hear what that is. Well, it's also one of the rare sports events that warrants a dedicated Sports Pro podcast episode, so it must be big. 
let's look at some of the criteria there, Tom. In terms of the commercial impact it delivers for its partners, one story that I always find staggering is that the halftime show is an unpaid position and the artists can sometimes pay millions of dollars, um, north of millions of dollars, just for the logistics and some of the production that goes into that show. It shows the reach that the product has and the transformative impact it has on those involved in it is enormous, right? You saw the searches for, for Fenty Beauty, Rihanna's beauty brand sort of skyrocketing during the halftime show and immediately afterwards. It really does show the, the impact it can drive. Not just for Rihanna, like the Apple pays, but I think it's in the region of 50 million annually for that deal. And Relometrics, who kind of use a sort of AI tech to measure these things, put their brand exposure at 21.5 million just for that window of Rihanna's performance. So that's not including all of the other stuff that goes around it and the review elements of all of this. So from a commercial level, I mean, like, as I said before, there's not many things that touch it. For the networks, as I said, 7 million for a 30 second ad slot. In terms of monetizing fans, I think it's about 9,000, the average spend per fan. Again, that each isn't going to spend 9,000, but like in terms of like delivering an impact for an area, that's a lot of money being pumped into whichever city's hosting it. That's why there's such massive competition to land these things. I mean, like NFL cities will literally build new stadiums with the sole goal of hosting Super Bowl because it can probably help pay back a significant chunk of whatever it costs to build that venue in the first place. On that commercial side, I think like it should score pretty highly. Yeah, as you say, it's fairly unparalleled in the financial value that it brings. It's uh, it's not often that, you know, the anticipation around advertising slots for the Super Bowl are sort of worldwide phenomenons. And as you say, how heavily coveted those tickets are, I think slightly speaks for itself. So what about the, the fan experience, both in terms of logistics and in terms of the, the general vibes around the event? I mean, this will obviously change from city to city. A Super Bowl in New Orleans will be a way different Super Bowl experience to a Super Bowl in Minnesota. They had it in Minnesota a few years ago. That's a lot of time for people to spend inside because you've got to think that time of year in that part of the country, you're not really going to be able to be outside much and celebrating it. Whereas in New Orleans, it's completely different. LA, again, very similar, nice climate all year round. You're going to be able to do a lot more outside than you would in other parts of the country. And then it becomes probably about more of what the, what the game experience is like. The, the cost is high. That for me is a big downside. I, I think... Say if you're a fan of a successful team and you go to you get to Super Bowl all the time, do you really want to be spending ten grand like every couple of years to go to a single sporting event? Some people probably say yes. I don't think personally that I would agree with that. I don't know about like the kind of the getting ins and outs of some of these places. Again, that would depend on the the venue itself. So I mean, one of the things about the Super Bowl in recent years is it's been awarded to a lot of new venues, which generally are much better connected than some of the older ones. But if say it was at a, a Levi's Stadium in Santa Clara that experience of getting in and out is not going to be as good as it would be at uh, Hollywood Park or at Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. Like they're, they're, it, that's, a, that's a real mixed bag. Whereas I think probably compared to other events that we might come on to talk about, the, the, the fan experience of getting there and being there might feel less like you're kind of being bled dry. That, that would probably be my, uh, I think if I was going to have a knock on it, I'd say that's it. So it's probably when it comes to the, the logistical side of it and the, all of that, I think for a fan, it's probably middling. Being there, I imagine great. Having not experienced it personally myself, and that's probably a major caveat here, but like having not experienced that personally myself, like that, that whole thing looks incredible. I imagine in the stadium, I think all of the sort of reactions that came out of it, and we could speak to Chris Stone probably more about this, of, of being at a Super Bowl and watching a team lose, but 
being at the event itself is probably a pretty good experience, but like the feeling of coming away from it, like, oh, wow, that was a real big hit on my wallet, maybe detracts slightly in terms of your overall feeling. So saying a, a middling experience and sort of the fives and sixes for the logistics and the fan experience, but a solid eight to 10 when it comes to the commercial impact on for both fans and, and partners. I think that sounds fair. Cool. Let's go with that. Now, Ed, I know uh, you had some nominations as well. So let's hear your first one. Well, very compelling pitch from Tom. I mean, he's wrong, of course. <laughs> the Super Bowl is the biggest, but not the best live event experience. It is an orgy of uncouth success. That is, <laughs> But, you know, in the interest of time, I'll keep this brief. The Masters, on the other hand, is a wonderful mix of of modern modern golf, modern use of technology, modern capabilities, coupled with admittedly a slightly airbrushed version of golf's past. But I think it is a lovely mix of the two. And you'll see it, you, it's still in keeping with the traditions that kind of have brought the Masters to where it is, but it's embracing new elements such as, as you say, technology, which is benefiting the fan experience, whether that's, as you say, getting in and around Augusta, coupled with things like data tracking, stuff like that. And then, of course, there's the commercial appeal of the event. The diff- you only have to look at the different brands that are involved with it and the long-term ones, how, you know, their commitment to that. So for me, that all adds up to, um, I think it's actually an event where it does a very good job of balancing the old and the new. If I was to kind of push back on some of that so the masters fighting fighting talk from (laughs) i mean so the the masters uh the most like i'm a massive golf fan for me the masters is and i'm not to clarify depending on depending on sort of course depend with the open either the best or second best golf event of the year and whether or not it's a Ryder cup year but one of the main things about it that is fantastic and as you said it protects the traditions really well but you can't take your phone like your phone is literally whipped away from you at the entrance so any innovation any technology plug-in really if that's not you're not going to be able to experience that in real time you might be able to afterwards that might be fantastic in and around the event but actually if you're on the ground at the at the masters there'll be no live kind of tracking for you on what is going on over on the other side of the course even what like the scores are you're reliant very much on what is on the ground and although that for me, that could be a positive, like I might actually not want my phone. It's great that you can have people really plugged into exactly what is going on right in front of them rather than scrolling through, scrolling through Twitter, checking in on something that's completely irrelevant, reading emails, whatever it is, like being able to focus purely on the sport. That for me maybe is a positive, but like in terms of creating new innovations for fans, that puts a bit of a ceiling on it. One of the other great things about this, I think, I don't know if Eddie, you're going to come and talk about it, but pricing for the Masters is incredibly cheap, right? It is. I don't have the figures to hand, but I know in comparison to other other events of that ilk, it is reasonable. Yeah, I mean, from as far as I'm aware, like concession prices and uh, for food and drink are, I mean, they're, they're held right down. Um, and so... On that that perspective, that that's like a really nice legacy, a really nice kind of traditional element of the event, and all of that, and that plays into that positioning. Sorry, Ed, I feel like I've kind of started sort of stolen your thunder and started pitching your making uh, his your, case for making it. making the case for the Masters here. No, not at all. I mean, you are the you are the golf fan. You've fallen into my trap, Tom. Um, but no, I think I think the point I was also trying to make is because I've sort of come at, and this goes back to what we said at the start, there's, I don't really see the point of me championing a live event that we're, chances are we're always going to be inherently interested in. I've tried to come at this a bit more sort of from the outside looking in 
I mean, you know, I, I follow golf, but I, I'd be hard pressed to say I'm a massive fan, but I have been impressed by what the Masters offers. I definitely take your points, Tom. Do you not think as well, Ed, that that, that does highlight the success of the event? I'm, I think, very similar to you in that I don't follow golf on a weekly basis. I couldn't tell you weekly standings within the PGA Tour or the European Tour, but I can definitely tell you when the Masters is on. It's, it's a fixture of my sporting calendar, and that does show its success. Yeah, there's an aura to it. I think we can probably remember where we all were when Tiger won in, what was it, 2019? You know, it was, it was an extraordinary. And obviously, you can't always bank on things like happening like that with every event, uh, every Masters. But the Masters is a cornerstone of the sporting calendar, never mind golf. So I think looking at the criteria, just I know we've got a few more to rattle through. I think vibes, it does retain, you know, that slightly sort of subdued, for want of a better word, kind of, got, you know, polite golf element but obviously there are that has that aura to it it has that mysticism and that aura as you said that almost is larger than the event itself yes i would agree you know you get people there that camp out for all four days if not more and then there's obviously commercial impact for fans and partners i think tom's point about depending on where you look at it phones and stuff like that obviously limits certain elements of that but i think you only have to look at the commercial partners they've got that continue to renew and the new ones they bring in to know that it's a bit of a behemoth there and logistics as well ferrying people around you know having 18 holes and just all the logistics surrounded that the fact that it doesn't sort of become a free-for-all i think is a testament to how it operates it almost it's an event that from the outside certainly doesn't seem to command the same level of commercial clout that something like a Super Bowl does and doesn't seek to either, right? You, Tom, you mentioned the concessions prices being purposefully low. It's one that seems to prioritise the fan experience over the direct commercial outcomes. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I, th- I think one of the sort of things that the Masters does really well is has that premium feel, which something the Olympics does. Uh, you won't see a lot of branding around the Olympics. Um, you won't see a lot of brand- branding around the Masters. What you're paying for to be a Masters partner is is positioning. You'll see your very top tier brands being involved in minimal branding for data and timekeeping, Rolex, for example. And then obviously you, you sort of got the endemic stuff which goes with the players, so like all of their brands and that kind of thing. There's not a kind of <laughs> official car wash company of, of, of the Masters or or just something low over like that. It knows what its positioning is. It's able to deliver it for its partners in that way because it, it's got its identity and that's what its selling point. It's not seeking to drive revenue from every single edifice. It's uh, it's more about creating that positioning for you and your brand. And if you're able to get there, then that kind of says more about you than it does about the event. I think comparing any any event to the Super Bowl commercially is is kind of a moot point really I mean the the Masters kind of feels like a church fake compared to the Super Bowl so I think that's probably worth bearing in mind <laughs> that might be your invitation to Augusta in a few weeks time rescinded there Ed calling it a church fake anyway I've gone for a ranking of, of eight from a fan experience point of view a pair of sixes on the commercial impact for fans and partners and a solid seven on the logistics front how does that sound Ed fair Sure, why not? The George, I'm not going to argue with the with the host. You're judge, jury, and executioner, so I'll, I'll leave you be. Speaking of which, I am now case for the defence. So my live event that I am going to put forward to you both is Formula One and a Formula One weekend. So I had the pleasure last summer of attending Silverstone for the British Grand Prix, and I came with sort of managed expectations, I would say, and I, I thought it was a, a really well put on event. So. 
undoubtedly, when you look at its commercial impact, Formula One's commercial impact is growing season by season at a pretty extraordinary rate. We've all heard of the sort of the drive to survive effect. And I think you can tell that when you're there, you can obviously see the the huge swathes of branding, the significant clout of their financial partners, the Aramcos of the world, etc. So I think that's a pretty well trodden path. But what I thought was so superb was the fan experience. So a lot of live events you see are sort of, it's all about the actual on track or the, the on pitch entertainment whereas formula one has you know concerts multiple times per day it has sort of classic car demonstrations around the track it has the driver parade it's sort of that when you go there there's a timetable and a schedule of all of these events right from thursday full on until late sunday night and and concerts from big names i think it is unparalleled in the way it delivers that fan experience there's Areas that cater directly for children, um, like bouncy castle, sort of theme park type things. You've got pit stop challenges. You've got simulator experiences that are all tied under the F1 brand. So it has a, a bit of something for everyone, which I think was superb. And finally, I'll make my case on the logistics front. Obviously, travel is difficult. Some of these tracks that are outside of city centers and that are more difficult to get to. But they do make up for that, I think, with just the sheer size of the track allows there to be, you know, a lot of food opportunities, drinking opportunities. So the queues are reduced. And actually, there are dedicated spaces that have thematic feels to them, like food courts that are branded under certain cuisines, etc. So I thought it was a an event that maybe not spectacular in any one area, like the Super Bowl is with its commercial impact, but makes a very strong case across the board. The defense rests. Have you ever watched F1? course i have so you were there did you see anything i did yeah i saw the if you've seen drive to survive season i saw the i unfortunately saw the uh joe Granue crash that's been played about fifteen thousand times on the new netflix series i'm probably slightly biased i'm not the biggest motorsport fan i, I will watch the occasional grand prix but i can't imagine that that experience of being at the track it may be a great event experience it might be a great vibe but is it actually the best sporting experience is it just a lot of noise and a lot of a lot of kerfuffle around like something that you can't really even like you can't even really enjoy as a spectacle when you're there like i'm sure the food and the drinks and all of that kind of stuff is lovely the concert's great but like is it actually a kind of a sporting experience or is it much like a sort of oyster is it just a vibe i i would suggest that the the sporting experience is of course variable from uh, race to race and last season did have its challenges in terms of domination by one team which obviously does impact what happens on the track but the race i saw obviously being biased compared to one experience was incredible drama i would put that up there with my sort of top three event atmospheres ever which i don't say lightly i would say i'm also concerned about how worried you are on the rankings tom considering you went for the whole sort of grandpa it's just you know, 10 blokes kicking a ball about approach. But it's just lots of cars making a lot of noise. So according to the criteria which we set out, it's ranking pretty highly. You can't disagree. No, you make a good, it's a, it's a good, uh, it's a good response. Um, and and like, I, I don't think you're wrong in terms of like the, the commercial side of it at all. I think it, it like there is a lot of scope for partners to activate in loads of different ways. That's sort of one of the main things I think about how it works with team partners as well like they get to activate around the event they get to bring in like it becomes relevant for the for the sort of 
the car wash partner uh, for one <laughs> for one for one of uh, one of a better example there's loads of ways that they can interact with those fans on the ground it's a huge campus to work with and there's lots of ways in which you can do that from a very premium level with what we see with like the trackside stuff to the camping side of it at silverstone and all of that too so like i don't doubt from that as an event in that way it, it delivers for me it feels like a kind of like a super bowl but light it's like a master's but it's not quite as premium. So for me, like that's where I'm coming in from it. And like, that's where I'm positioning it. So I don't think you can really say like, oh yeah, it's the greatest sporting experience you'll have. It's the best opportunity to be a premium partner. So like that would be my knocks on uh, on my pushbacks on that. But does it want to be with the historical prestige of the Masters and with the immense commercial impact of the Super Bowl, you're naturally going to price out the vast majority of spectators the what something like formula one does really well is for you know the heavy rollers the ones that want to spend significant amounts of money for the premium seating they have that right they have that with the pitch straights but you're able to take a camper van you're able to camp for three days and have a sort of a track pass where you can sit with your fold down chair and your tinnies and you can watch from from the the bank of one of the corners so actually that's a fan experience that caters to all different demographics but doesn't have the restrictive essentially level to buy that a masters or a or a super bowl might have i think then you have to rather than saying an f1 grand prix i think you might have to pick one because to say that's the experience across all of them is, is is not really true. Like, there's going to be various different levels of like what this means to say compared to like I don't know uh, a Dutch Grand Prix and a, and a um, British Grand Prix, probably quite similar to what you're going to get in Miami, Abu Dhabi, Saudi Arabia, Las Vegas. Good point. Like those, there it's the historical the Grand Prix compared to the yeah recent addition to the calendar. It's yeah, like or, fair and, and and even I mean even like if you take a sort of city one, so. Uh, a Monaco, where do you pitch that? I think for me to like accept this as being in our top three, you might have to pick one of them and really make the case for that. I'll pick Silverstone and I, I, hopefully I've made my case. So are we all agree- in agreement that straight tens across the board? Absolutely not. <laughs> Excellent. My point would be, it's worth bearing in mind that when Liberty bought F1, the FT did a report where, and they cited an, F, an unnamed F1 exec that said they plan to make every Formula One Grand Prix into a Super Bowl, which, depending on how you look at it, either supports Tom's case for the Super Bowl or supports George's because it's obviously leaning into the influence of the Super Bowl, but at the same time, it puts F1, it offers some unique opportunity for F1. They can take the Super Bowl approach for whatever that is and put it on a country-by-country basis, whereas the Super Bowl is limited to essentially, I mean, it is it is big outside the US, but it is predominantly very much a US first sport, they can only do that on a city by city, state by state basis. Formula One, in theory, can take that approach and then make it global. I mean, literally, they can put they can plant their flag pretty much every single continent now. I think their approach, it still needs refining. I guess my question to you, George, would be, was the live event experience, did you felt it complemented or did it provide a nice distraction from cars going round and round in circles? I think it complemented um, strongly. What for me was the standout was just how that I'd already had a fantastic day before the lights had gone out when the Grand Prix started. I'd, you know, been and I was only there just for the one day, unfortunately, on the Sunday. But I don't know we had our one of our Black Book events there on the Friday, and the staff that were there for that event also commented on how well set up Silverstone was for the overall event experience and. 
I definitely didn't want to leave when I had to. There were plenty of other things I could get involved in. I think Bastille were playing that evening after I'd left. You know, it's one that when you go to a sporting event where the main on-track action doesn't feel like the pinnacle of the day or doesn't feel like the climax of the day, I think is is always something where you're on, on to a winner. Well, you picked a good time to leave if Bastille were playing. I, I wouldn't have a problem with use of, of taking F1 at large rather than a specific one, but I'm conscious of time, so I'm sure I'll leave. I'll leave you and you and Tom to to decide. Tom, where, where are you gonna? How are you gonna score? Score my case for the, the fans. So I think it sounds like fan experience is high. So ten. Uh, <laughs> what is a perfect ten? I mean, let's go. Let's be fair and go eight. That's, that's tough. <laughs> uh, co- like commercialing, I think I think Ed's probably like I think Ed's onto made a good point there about the fact that like what is it um, and builds on sort of what I was saying. So I don't think it can kind of quite reach those heights of the uh, reach the heights of a Super Bowl. So maybe a six or a seven for both, not for the commercial partners. That's an eight. I don't think it can be lower than the Masters. It can't be, can it? Yeah, it can't. Be. An eight for the commercial partners, I'd say. Okay, fine. And then for logistics, we'll go for a 10. No, we'll go for nine. We'll go for nine. I mean, actually, point on this. Well, like, how do you get there? That's a good question. Uh, train and then um, loads of regular buses to the track and then buses back. Can you walk? No. Okay, we'll give it an eight then. Ooh, himself very high. Tough. The concessions are... Uh, but you can't... But hang on. you can't, But that's just for Silverstone. If you're if you're in Monaco, you don't have to leave your incredibly overpriced Airbnb. And if you're in Saudi Arabia, you've got no chance of getting there because it's in the middle of the desert. True. This <laughs> is it, it's in the street circuit. Oh, of all... <laughs> um, okay, so we'll we'll give it eight seven eight eight, um, which I still think is extremely harsh. We've all we've all made our cases for our top live sporting event, and in the interest of time, I'm going to put in a, a two and a half minute limit for your case to be made for your second favourite live events. Tom, we'll start with you. Wimbledon. Easy. I'll start from where we ended on F1. It's in the middle of Wimbledon. It's in London. You can walk there. The public transport links, it might not be the closest tube stop in the world, but they're there. It's accessible. Anyone can go. There's a public ballot. The tickets are awarded in an extremely fair method, regardless of whether or not you actually get one. Members, obviously, that's a kind of different thing. Obviously, a really high premium positioned event. All of its sponsors are at that premium level. I don't think that there's ever really any complaints about the delivery for those. Like I think that it never, it never struggles to attract new commercial opportunity. In terms of broadcast reach, it's, it's one of the crown jewels of the British summer. The fan experience, if you go, phenomenal. Like you can walk into, you can walk into the grounds and you don't need to even have a ticket for the main, for the main courts in order to go and see some like, phenomenal sport. And actually, the vibe is incredible. There's uh, there's Hemman Hill, which in itself is an experience. The surroundings are beautiful. The f- like the quality of the concessions is great. I mean, is it the most affordable? No. Is it outrageously expensive? Also, no. I think that's a pretty concise and like very strong entry for um, yeah the greatest tournament in the game. We haven't come on to mine yet, but I, I did think when you started that off that you were you were being tongue in cheek, saying it's logistic, it's travel logistics were a strength, and its ticketing system were a strength, is uh, probably the opening few minutes of Michael McIntyre's next comedy set. But uh, so I'll have to disagree with you on that one, Tom. But the rest of the case was strong, I will say. Ed, what were your thoughts? 
Uh, it's a very compelling case, and I don't really want to give mine now because it's not going to win. Well, come on, let's we'll debate Tom's for a couple of minutes. I, I would agree that the it is a fixture of the the British sporting calendar. It definitely benefits significantly in in England for sure for being on the BBC and having free to air coverage. I think that does a huge amount for the fan experience beyond just those in the stadium. Ed, what do you think about its commercial partnerships? Uh, it has, I guess, just to bring it back to my, mine, just to sort of give it one final push, it has that aura, it has that appeal that the Masters has. I <laughs> know, <laughs> uh, but my point, I would say it, it, it has, as you say, it is, the, it is one of the jewels in the crown of the British sporting summer. It's the tournament that tennis players want to win. And it leverages that very, very well with its mix of partners. It's kind of got heritage brands, some newer ones. It provides a very appealing sort of proposition for brand partners in terms of what it can offer, what it can do. I guess going forward, it needs to, I think, be more aware of how it keeps that appeal and how it sort of stays with the times, if you like. And, you know, we're seeing other um, tournaments struggling perhaps to sort of blend that mix of heritage and the new ways that perhaps younger younger fans like to engage. But I think Wimbledon is, I think it's doing a better job than most and that's reflected in the commercial interest around it. I think you only have to look at IBM, right? Like mm. this is sort of my main criticism of the Masters is that like you lose that by being so traditional and I, I guess by focusing so much on the experience on the ground, you lose some of the ability to bring in additional elements. And this is one of the things that Wimbledon does really well. Mm. Like IBM is, is so integrated into the tournament, but the, those integrations make sense. Like they elevate the tournament and they actually provide a platform for IBM to show what they do as a business in a really good way and benefit the fan at the same time, which like, I'm talking about experience and bringing commercial partners. Like, There's not too many that do it as well as Wimbledon. Yeah, I would agree with that. What may surprise some people is I, I find sporting events that continually lean on their historical importance quite frustrating, particularly when they don't deliver um, an impact on the back of that. There are plenty of sporting events in the calendar that fall into that bracket, but I do think Wimbledon's not one of them. They've done a really good job at, at innovating alongside keeping that tradition and keeping what makes a lot of people come back, right? So, Tom, you mentioned the IBM partnership. Um, when I was there last summer, one thing I thought they did really well is when you have the sort of the, the ground pass um, before the main courts open up for the day, you're able to go and watch two tennis players you may not have heard of or you may not have followed. And the IBM statistics actually provide a narrative and a story around that match. And it gives you something to be invested in, which I think is a, a really interesting innovation. And, and same with some of the stuff they're doing off the court. You know, they, they've partnered with Roblox to create Wimble World. So they are managing to use some of that digital infrastructure to stay relevant and to stay interesting for younger audiences. So... Uh, I will concede that it's a strong entry, Tom. It sounds like it's going to score quite highly. Should we uh, Should we maybe hand out some marks? The operative word being quite. Um, so I'm going to say from a fan experience, you, you can't can't argue with an eight, surely? I think you could go Travel, high. travel. Okay, fine. Travel's a tough one coming out of the <laughs> commercial impact for the fans. Strawberries and cream staying at the same price is always noted. And as you say, the tickets, I think, are in that sweet spot between not being so cheap that, you know, is there impossible to get? but not being so prohibitively expensive that you can't get there. So I'll give you a, a nine for that one. And commercial impact for partners, seven. Mate, I'd go higher than that. I think you like... Broadcast, free-to-air broadcast deal. 
what does that mean? Like that, you can go high, you, you, you can't. No, but the, okay. It's, it's, so it's, it's, as, as a counterpoint to that, I mean, it's not on. It's not on. It's not on free to air globally. It's on. It's on free to air in the UK, which I think actually generates interest in its home country, which is more important. You could generate those broadcast revenues overseas if you want to, but actually, like that's a strategic choice is to be in that. It's actually a legal uh, legal choice rather than anything else as well. It's a protected event, so it couldn't actually go outside of that and be on pay TV, even if it wanted to because of the laws in the UK. I think to, to give it a seven from that perspective is very harsh. I would push for an eight or a nine. Strong case, passionately and well made. So we'll upgrade that to an eight. Um, logistics, it's very, nothing nothing groundbreaking there. So we'll go for a six. Seven at least. Come on, GB. <laughs> seven. Yeah, we'll go for we'll round up to a seven. You're lucky you're the co-host, Tom. Now, Ed. Um, let's hear your case for your final live sport team. Right. This is the wildest of wild cards and it's not going to win, but Hey, uh, it's influencer boxing, specifically misfits boxing, irrespective of whether you think it's, you know, proper sport, they're proper athletes or not. It doesn't matter. These, uh, misfits. So, which has been co-founded by KSI. They are, that organization is one of the masters of leveraging their audience and their athletes. They're influencer athletes. They, the way that they can cultivate likes, clicks, engagement, people buying into the events is unmatched. And there are so many learnings that uh, not just combat sports, particularly boxing, can take from this, but other sports as well in terms of leveraging your audience, keeping them engaged, getting them to invest in your product, buy into your product. I mean, it's been going for less than a year, but they're selling out arenas. But crucially, like most boxing fans in particular, they will, when there's an undercard and it stinks the place out, they might go for the last one or two before the main event. These people for Misfits, they're getting there earlier and they're staying for the whole event, which, you know, opens up so many other opportunities, whether that's, as you say, spending on food and drink, buying other stuff. I think it's the new way. It's the new era of the live event experience it may be a bit loud it may be a bit uncouth you may question its legitimacy i guess but it's taking it's with a heavy dose of wwe it's kind of taking a lot of that and applying it in a non-scripted sport format and we've seen how well wwe has done obviously you can debate whether that's a sport or not but if organizations like misfits are able to harness that fusion of sport and entertainment more organizations are able to do that i think it's going to make for quite a potent mix going forward now Ed, let's talk about some of the criteria it's a case well made once again in terms of its commercial impact what do you say to the argument that something like misfits boxing struggles to attract major commercial partners outside of the influencer brands that are attached to it so you take something like a prime drinks and prime hydration I'm not actually sure of its of its official name. That obviously has heavy branding in some of the mis- misfits events, but that's purely based on something like its co-founder in KSI. So, do you see it gaining genuine commercial traction outside of that? Yes, I think it will. And and you're right; it does definitely lose points in the fact that it doesn't have as many brands on board yet. But that's because it's such a new property. But you only have to look at taking misfits again. Its broadcast partner, so it's got a five year deal with the Zone. And a load of its events are on pay-per-view. DAZN came into the boxing market saying pay-per-view is going to, you know, going to be dead. It's going to be subscription only. Yes, they've already had to reevaluate that approach, their pay-per-view approach. And they put some fights on pay-per-view. They put Joshua on pay-per-view. I know his next one isn't on pay-per-view, but they have uh, with him. They've done it with Canelo Alvarez. They're now doing it for influencer boxing. That's mad. 
one of the big streaming players is betting big on this, which I think says a lot. And other brands should follow. Ed, I respect you for coming in and um, advocating for something which you yourself don't actually like. But um, <laughs> that was in the pre-chat. That's not fair. That was off the record. You're talking about design and broadcast here, but I'm talking about the live event experience. Who is this actually for? Like, I think like, one of the things I said well, at the top of this when I was thinking about my criteria is like, to its credit, what I think of influencer boxing does is it gets younger fans involved in a sport that they maybe weren't interested in. But at the exclusion of who? Like, it's not for everyone, is it? I don't think it's got a universal appeal. It has a limited appeal and it has a broad appeal to a certain set of people. But it can't have that universal appeal that, say, a tennis or F1 can have or even American football. Like, it's not got that broad access that actually we've we've mentioned in terms of, like, some of the other live events that we're talking about here. And you think, like it has its strengths and like it, it will have the ability to pull in new partners and potentially explore commercial avenues that boxing can't, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a great live event for everyone. So Ed, let's look at some of the scores there. So in terms of the fan experience, I've gone for a, a six um, just purely because I don't think it does any one thing extraordinarily different to the others. Do you think that's fair? I think it's sacrilege, but never mind. Seven on commercial impact for fans. Generous, yeah. Uh, seven on commercial impact for partners. I'll tell you what, we'll do eight on commercial impact for fans and six on commercial impact for partners. <sighs> it's the same score. I'll allow it. And logistics, finally, and logistics in terms of concessions. I don't think there's anything new there, so we'll go for a five. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Right. We'll have this conversation gonna... in five years' time, and then we'll see who's laughing. I will. <laughs> True. I will conclude. Um, I will conclude the submissions with an event that will be as no surprise to both of you, and probably not much of a surprise to our regular listeners. But the hundred. So my case for the hundred is that it is a cricketing event that actively seeks to distance itself from where it's been born from. So in terms of the fan experience, it's actively looking to differentiate itself from other cricketing events. It's much more family focused. It's priced and timed as such. Um, It's concessions driven around family experience, particularly no alcohol stands, for instance, and a reduction in the sale of alcohol, I think it is after 8 p.m. There's also a lot of activations that are centered around that fan base. So whether it be reaction, board challenges, wiki keeping drills, etc., all designed to bring kids into the game. It actively seeks to bring young audiences into the live event experience itself with sort of compares that roam around the events. Its rules are essentially being changed and the, the terminology around the event has been changed to be simpler for newer people coming into cricket. So from a fan experience and concessions, logistics point of view, I think it scores very, very highly. And finally, in terms of its commercial impact for fans, its ticket pricing is, I think, lower than the T20 Blast, which is a huge plus. Ticketing for kids is around £5, and it does sell out. So there's a huge ability to bring in that younger audience they're looking for, and they've done so successfully. And also the merchandising area. I think if you go to a 100 game, much more so than any other cricketing event, you see swathes and swathes of people in the commercial merchandise of these new franchises that, being honest, are only two years old now, which I think is quite an achievement. 
And finally, I'll go for the commercial impact in terms of partners. There was quite a lot of ridicule when they first announced their sort of KP Nuts partnership. So I think they haven't done a fantastic job of getting those top tier sponsors. But again, they're sponsors that have that demographic in mind. The next step for me is, are they going to be able to deliver that commercial impact long term? What is a potential route to privatization look like? And how are they really going to be able to extract the commercial value from it that something like the IPL is able to do or the big bash in Australia. Silence turns across the board. So the hundred obviously is a very new event. I think that that probably actually doesn't count in its favor. Obviously it's been able to design some of those things that you talked about and like they are undoubted pluses. Like I would completely concede that the embracing of family values and all of that kind of stuff, that is a real positive. It brings in a new audience. And for that reason, it like I completely can get that the hundred should score very highly, but also I don't think it's refined. Like I don't think it's quite absolutely nailed down the hundred percent what the hundred experience on the day is. Entering year three, I think there's probably a bit more work to do in terms of it's done a great job in terms of bringing in those younger families and bringing in those younger audiences. But like you probably need to be able to be almost a little bit broader than that too. Mm. Like it may have gone too far in that direction. Like I'm sort of loath to criticise that because I think it's really important for sports to bring in new fan bases, and I'm actually a big big supporter in, of the hundred in terms of its goals. But I think you probably need to be able to bridge that gap a little bit. And actually, it's like it's not completely answered all of the questions for me on what it is as a live event product like is it just still a fun day out do people really care about the results and maybe that will come with time but i I still think until it's kind of matured as a as a property and a product i don't think i can give it the sort of the full sports fan experience because you're not going to get that emotional buy-in that even like an f1 grand prix will give you to score really highly across the board we lauded american sports today for managing to create that hybrid between sports and entertainment do you not think that's the only european sports property that's done that really well particularly it's managed to combine the the women and the men's games together so that there's it's not so much of i'm you know a a tribal supporter of over invincibles men but actually I, i want to have a great day out i want to watch some great sport and i'm not hugely invested in the result because the event has successfully attracted an audience that's not tribal and that therefore is is able to provide a different experience to the fan and some might argue a better experience to the fan on account of a lack of competitive not a lack of but a reduced you know competitive context yeah i think that's fine and we can score it really highly in that regard like but i think in terms of being able to commercialize a fan i think you could probably people will be willing to pay for that experience and mm-hmm. they'll enjoy it. I don't know where like where that goes into the, the metrics that we're working with here, but like I don't think it can be a full 10 for those reasons that I've laid out. Okay. Case well made, Tom. Well, let's go into the scoring and, and, uh, and settle this now. So in terms of the fan experience, I thought we'd give it an eight. It scored very highly on the, the fan limits we talked about, but as you said, a lack of really clear identity and a lack of slight competitive context knocks it down a couple of points. Fair? I mean, based on the scoring of Wimbledon, I'm going to have to campaign for a seven on this one. It's It's gone for an eight, unfortunately, slip of the hand. Um, commercial impact. I'd have gone for a seven, Tom, if, if I had the pen and paper really, in my Unfortunately, hand. you don't, add. So, uh, it's, uh, surely it's... We're, yeah, we're being massively left at the sure, Surely it's eight, guys. Come on. Mr. Cricket over here. Okay, fine. I'll concede to my better nature. Seven, then, for the fan experience. 
which is hugely tough scoring. But commercial impact for fans, a 10. No. <laughs> Nothing's a 10. Nine. God, he's... Nine? Sure. <laughs> Just stop saying numbers and expecting us <laughs> to reward you. An eight. An eight. Or grudgingly. Commercial impact for partners, eight. It's got a lot of brands, but it hasn't got any of the... You know, it's not... No, even even I know it's not quite an eight. I'd say a seven. And then in terms of logistics, so concessions, the ability to cater to that audience, it's a nine. Yeah, I think so. The setup of cricket venues is strong. And uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely working in that regard. But so has the 100 really improved on that? It's just leaned into the existing infrastructure, hasn't it? We've all made our cases for our various events, but now it's time to look at the scores on the doors. In last place, unfortunately, came Misfits Boxing. Ed, uh, you made a strong case on that one, but not quite cutting the mustard. And Ed, it's tough to take for you, but in second last place, we also have the Masters. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Just, just ahead of the Masters, ever so slightly, comes the Super Bowl, probably mostly down to the fact of its high commercial impact. And then the top three is completed by a joint third or joint second place of Formula One and the 100. And finally, the winner is Wimbledon. So Tom, congratulations, your persuasive skills have won the day. And I think that all that's left to say for the rest of today is Tom and Ed, thanks for joining us. Cheers, guys. Thanks all. Is there a comment section in the pods? Because I think we might, you know, that's what I'm worried about now. Just to clarify that George Breer came up with these scores.